No, the really intriguing dynamic that we both have an interest in is uric acid metabolism and its role as either a bioactive material in affecting fuel partitioning in animal systems, including humans, but also it's being not so much a bioactive as a biomarker of metabolic state. And I've been curious about it because having done a lot of research in carbohydrate restriction, there's a very dynamic change in uric acid metabolism that occurs when initially we take all carbs out of the diet and its effect on blood levels. But I really haven't been paying attention to the near-term and also long-term effects of that, which has significant implications from the work you've done. Yeah, we're doing a lot of work on the role of uric acid in biology. And, you know, originally it was thought to be a biomarker, kind of an energy crisis biomarker. So uh, Irving Fox and others would point out that in settings where there's a decrease in energy provided, that uric acid often goes up in the blood. Mm -hmm. The classic situation in which uric acid goes up is during starvation, particularly when protein is broken down. So initially, when you starve the first 24 hours or so, the glucose in the blood is provided by glycogen that's broken down in the liver. Mm -hmm. And then rapidly, the body switches to starting to burn fat. But during that initial part of the burning of fat, the brain still has not adapted to being able to use ketones. And so in the very first part of this second phase, uh, uric acid goes up. And that's probably from a reflection of protein breakdown and gluconeogenesis. Protein breakdown, or is it actual cell loss resulting in degradation of nucleic acids in the nucleus and in messenger RNA within cells that are undergoing cell death. I think it probably is protein breakdown, probably breakdown of muscle cells and so forth that with the release of nucleic acids. And then the usually pro- we say in humans that when you calorically restrict, what you see in terms of nitrogen loss is because of ongoing turnover of protein, you see reduction in protein synthesis, but maintenance of protein breakdown. And the amount of contractile protein in muscle decreases, but we hadn't thought of that as including the actual cell death. I think there probably is. So you all are saying that there's two possibilities for why uric acid levels rise. One is that the actual cells die, and then they release uric acid from the nucleic acid. And the other possibility is by recycling the proteins that are just here and there, or a cell getting in a beleaguered state but not dead yet. Um, You're saying that that kind of drawing out of proteins can raise uric acid levels even without it being a cell turnover causing the increase. So, so you can synthesize uric acid from amino acid precursor, but a more common way is for cell turnover with nucleic acid release. The nucleic acids are broken down and then the liver generates the uric acid from those breakdown products. Okay, so the cells die and as part of the death then there's this recycling of the nucleic acids, which turns into uric acid. Correct. Particularly the purine nucleotides result in obligate uric acid synthesis. They can't be recovered. Most cells can't salvage nucleic acids. The only ones that can, as I mentioned to you, were the gut mucosal cells that are capable of salvaging nucleic acids from food to meet their nucleic acid synthesis needs. Are you both now saying the same thing about what causes the uric acid levels to rise? Okay, Um, not yet, so, okay. As an internist, I was trained to treat hyperuricemia, and I'm aware of the benefits of lowering uric acid. But I've always looked at it from managing the patient from a chronic 
elevated perspective. So as somebody who's done a lot of work with carbohydrate and calorie-restricted diets, I've always treated what I consider a transient rise in uric acid in the first few weeks of keto adaptation as something that only represented a risk if we had somebody with a prior history of gout, where either the rapid rise or rapid fall would then elicit a, a symptomatic gouty attack. And otherwise, in people not prone to gout, I always treated that spike and then decline back to baseline as being something which was inherently benign in the long term and didn't require treatment. But I'm certainly open to being re-educated if that was a a misconception. Well, the uric acid definitely has a lot of biologic effects, um, and we can show that it's kind of an alarm signal with biologic function attached. It can activate inflammatory cells can induce inflammation of a wide variety of cell types. It can cause vasoconstriction and raise blood pressure. And I know that Dr. Feig, for example, has noticed that following bariatric surgery, there's an early rise in uric acid associated with the breakdown, and that this correlates with a pretty significant rise in blood pressure that occurs at the same time. The more we learn, the more we recognize that the uric acid is probably not just a marker, but a player in this whole series of events that are involved in starvation and in the mechanisms undergoing fat and carbohydrate storage and inflammation and and so forth. Mm -hmm. So we're actively studying a lot of these processes. So Mm -hmm. your viewpoint will change with time. I'm aware of the effects seen in bariatric surgery patients. When I did my clinical fellowship in nutrition, I worked at a hospital that had a, a large bariatric surgery population. Some of them were managed by a group of physicians who felt that refeeding the patient after bariatric surgery, this was mostly gastric bypass surgery with a Roux-en-Y connection and an anastomosis was 0.8 centimeters from the residual stomach pouch to the small bowel. Any calories you got into those people was good to get them uh, refed and out of the hospital. And the primary food that they were fed were simple carbohydrates. This is the Deaconess Hospital at Harvard. We're under the care of George Blackburn and Bruce Bistrian. And they were strong advocates of using low-carb ketogenic diets. Some of the patients who had difficulty, not so much in medical or surgical difficulty, but had difficulty with avoiding foods that caused them problems. So they'd eat something like fresh milk products that would form curds, plug their anastomosis, they'd be obstructed, and they'd come into the ER. And... One of the ploys that George Blackburn used was he'd admit them to the metabolic research ward over at MIT where I was a graduate student, and I kind of became their lieutenant in charge of whipping these people into shape in terms of food choices. So I got to deal with quite a few of these people in a metabolic ward. We can't do that kind of thing anymore, but we had an open protocol for post-operative management of, of gastric bypass patients. I had a chance to deal with quite a few patients, and what we found was... When we kept people in nutritional ketosis, which is a term that we use to differentiate, you know, ketone levels under 3 millimolar, if you're totally starved, maybe go to 5 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate, but if you're fed at least a modicum of protein, even without carb, you stay 1 to 3 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is a log order lower than ketoacidosis. So in patients with nutritional ketosis, if anything, we saw blood pressures stay low. We saw very good metabolic tolerance, even in the first few weeks of that degree of restriction. It seemed to be quite different from the pattern we saw with people who were refed with sugars and starches. We did not just gastric bypass patients, but we had people who were just on a very low-calorie ketogenic diet, not post-operative, who were in the metabolic ward. We were studying 
basically metabolic adaptation to sure. carbohydrate restriction. Bruce and George together probably published 50 papers on that. I got to be part of about five or six of those papers during my fellowship. Did they get any glucose at all? Typically, we would feed one of two diets. We would feed either a meat, fish, and poultry diet providing 600 to 800 calories per day with about 100 grams of protein, but we adjusted it to the stature and gender. So we're trying to provide about 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram reference body weight per day. That was problematic. The meat, fish, and poultry was problematic in early gastric bypass patients. So there we would use formula ketogenic diets where we'd use a commercial weight loss formula that would provide something in the order of 1.2 to 1.5 grams of protein and about one-third as many calories as carbohydrate, usually as maltodextrin, not as sucrose. So perhaps you didn't see the rise in uric acid in the acute phases, or did you? Oh, we saw the rise in uric acid. And the rise in uric acid didn't matter whether we were feeding animal protein or purified whey or caseins, which would not contain the nucleic acid components of, of full cellular proteins. We didn't see any difference either in that time period or studies I subsequently did at the University of Minnesota in cohorts of up to 40 people per group where we compared a meat-based diet to a formula-based diet. The metabolic profile in terms of uric acid and ketone levels were pretty much identical, independent of the protein source. So that leads me to think that the rise in uric acid is not as much driven from purine's intake in the diet, but is due to either the protein amount, the, yeah, as you say, you can make uric acid from proteins, uh, or from the competition between ketones filtered from the blood being reabsorbed in the kidney, and I don't know if it's still politically correct to talk about the organic acid secretory pathway, but the competition between ketones and uric acid has always been thought to be the classic reason for the rise in, in uric acid following the induction of a ketogenic state. One possibility is that the ketones are blocking the uric acid secretion, so you end up becoming hyperuricemic. But the problem with that hypothesis is that the ketones continue, but the uric acid comes down. So there either is then an adaptation or there's another mechanism for the rise in uric acid. So the question is, you know, why I was thinking that it related to the fact that the brain may not adapt to the beta-hydroxybutyrate rapidly, and there may be a desire to help maintain glucose levels, in which case the question is, could you do gluconeogenesis from the proteins administered or would they have to break muscle down and if they had to break muscle down that would be a good mechanism for the uric acid rise good question and i brought along a little bit of data because i thought the question might come up we did a study in a group of lean healthy males some of whom were bicycle racers and we locked them up in the metabolic research ward and gave them seven days of a high carbohydrate low fat diet which is similar to what they typically ate And this is nitrogen balance, which is calculated by taking measured nitrogen intake. And these were in a metabolic ward. They were fed precisely portioned amounts of food, and they had consumed the whole diet. And then we collected all urine and all stools. We estimated skin and hair loss. Uh, But the rest of the losses in, in urine stools were measured by urine total nitrogen and stool total nitrogen analysis. So this is feeding them uh, 1.7 grams of protein per kilo reference body weight per day with a eucaloric diet, so it's calculated to be weight maintenance for these guys because they're all lean, healthy males. And then we took away all their carbs and gave them a diet that was the same amount of protein, had no visible carbs, so the only carbs they got was glycogen in the meat, fish, and poultry that they were fed. And this is nitrogen balance response. So this is a transient period of lean body mass loss, but three 
each gram of nitrogen excretion roughly calculates out to one ounce of lean body mass loss. So they're losing less than a quarter pound. We were talking about the possibility they may have muscle loss acutely, and this is what I think is driving the uric acid up. But the total loss here is at most a pound. In the area under the curve for the average subject, this is nine subjects, mean values for nine subjects. And then by the end of the first week, they're above baseline. But notice that in the metabolic ward, and this was done by, in a ward that was set up by Nevins Grimshaw and, and Vernon Young, who were kind of the, and Hamish Monroe, who were the gods of nitrogen metabolism back in the 1960s and 70s, their typical observation is for lean people in metabolic and lean tissue balance, protein maintenance is about plus one gram per kilo. And that's maybe due to skin and hair losses. But you can see that within the final three weeks of the study, we were back to and maybe slightly above. They were maybe recovering back what little bit they lost here. So the prediction is the uric acid would only be high during this phase and would rapidly and come here down. The uric acid values, the, the light blue bars are this group of lean, healthy males. They started with values a little under six. They went to values over 12, week two, 11. And then by week four, they're heading back down, but they're not nowhere near back down to baseline. This other bars here are six obese subjects, five females, one male, who were in a metabolic ward at the University of Vermont. We gave them the same amount of protein, but we didn't give them the fat. These are obese people who wanted to lose weight. So they were on a 7,800 calorie per day meat, fish, and poultry, very low-calorie ketogenic diet. These guys... In this study, continued their training, the bicycle racers. So they're riding between 100 and 200 miles per week while making the diet transition. Uh, these people were sedentary subjects who only exercised when we did exercise tests three time points over six weeks. By second week, their response were similar to the bike racers. They seem to be getting pretty close to baseline. And these and, guys might too. And then my clinical experience using this as this kind of weight loss diet as a clinical tool in over 2,000 patients is we did labs once a month in those subjects. And by the third month, pretty much everybody was back down to their baseline uric acid levels. And many people actually went somewhat lower by four, five, and six months. The mean duration of time in our clinic on the ketogenic diet, which is monitored for ketone levels, the mean duration of time on the diet was five months. So I had a a fair amount of clinical experience in those subjects. Rick Johnson, you're interested in what happens to people's blood pressure and how that relates to uric acid. It sounds like you're saying the blood pressure really didn't change in these individuals, did you? But realize these are bike racers. Five of the nine were, were licensed bike racers who are riding 100 to 200 miles a week. That degree of physical effort and training can probably overwhelm Anything, yeah. <laughs> a, a great deal of incipient pathophysiology that you see in the untrained people. The other thing I want to point out is these are the actual measured serum beta-hydroxybutyrate concentrations in the light blue bar subjects. And you can see that by the first week, they're at 2 millimolar and stayed above 2 millimolar. There seemed to be a trend right down here, and we were interested in that. It wasn't statistically significant, but what was interesting is because the bike racers were going to undergo both a maximum performance test and an endurance test to exhaustion at week four, we asked them in the middle of week three to stop exercising. And we know that exercise drives ketogenesis. And this apparent reduction here is probably not a real trend down, but just that we took away the exercise driver, and that's the effect of, of exercise on ketone values. These people here on the blue bars averaged one and a half to two, so in the same range, one and a half to two millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate across a six-week duration of inpatient, absolute control diet. 
Are you saying then that you believe that this is because of the urinary ketones, that the uric acid's high and that there's some kind of adaptation that occurs? Because the urinary ketones stay they, high throughout. I've had people whose blood ketones remain high for months. They appear to make a full recovery from that initial transient hyperuricemia that there may be some delayed adaptation. Now, I'm interested in that. I call this, you know, human keto adaptation. And my interest has been the adaptation to physical performance because all the studies that led to the idea of carbohydrate loading as benefiting competitive athletes were done comparing low and high carbohydrate diets for durations of one to two weeks. And what we showed in the untrained subjects first was that when we put them on the low-carb diet and then tested them after one week, if that was their baseline endurance time to exhaustion, that's 180 minutes, so it's a little under three hours. This is untrained people walking uphill on a treadmill at 65% of peak aerobic power till they couldn't keep going. It's a cruel test to do. At baseline, they went 180 minutes. At one week of the ketogenic diet, they were down to close to two hours, which is a significant decline from here to there. After six weeks of adaptation, we put them back. Now, they lost 25 pounds. We put them back on the treadmill, but that wouldn't be fair because they'd lost all that weight, right? So what we did was we would put the subjects on the uphill treadmill, put a backpack on them, and make them carry all the weight they'd lost on their back to try to make it a weight-neutral effect, and yet they went for over four hours. Luckily, we measured heart rate and oxygen consumption, and it turns out that carrying the weight on your back is much more efficient than carrying it around your middle and on your, in your legs. And so this wasn't a true test of endurance because the oxygen cost and heart rate response was significantly attenuated from either of these two, which meant that we couldn't say that there was an improvement in performance, but clearly there was a significant recovery in performance. Did the bike racers show a decrease in performance at one week? When we did those studies, they were very invasive studies, Two catheters, one for infusing stable isotope, C15 glucose to measure whole body glucose turnover and oxidation, another catheter to draw blood, percutaneous needle biopsies of vastus lateralis before and after exercise to measure muscle glycogen. We figure if we did that three times in four weeks, we'd lose all our subjects. So we did only two studies, baseline and four weeks in the bike racers. Endurance time to exhaustion was 147 minutes at Again, about 65% of peak aerobic power. By the way, these guys' aerobic power is phenomenal. Five liters per minute represents 25 calories per minute of energy expenditure. Multiply that by 60, and you realize their peak aerobic powers are 1,500 calories per hour of expenditure. So running them at two-thirds of that, this, these, are, this, these guys are exercising at 1,000 calories an hour. 147 minutes here, 151. Absolutely no difference. They're measured VO2 max. Despite four weeks of eating no visible carbohydrate, their VO2 max was unimpaired. What changed was fuel use. This is respiratory quotient actually corrected for nitrogen metabolism, which isn't a big deal, but the 0.83 is roughly a 50-50 mixture of fat and carbohydrate during this exercise test for 147 minutes. Again, we had multiple test points along the way, too. And it's not just at one point, but a mean over the whole study duration. Here they're exercising an R value of 0.72. They're doing the same amount of work with almost 95% of the energy coming from fat. This is quintessential keto adaptation. This is muscle glycogen before the first test and after the first test. So they drop from 143 millimoles of glucose per kilogram of wet muscle to 56. They started with half as much glycogen. It didn't go to zero in spite of not eating any carbs for four weeks. And they've been training, but they started at half that value here and had only one quarter the glycogen use for the same duration and, and effort. 
preserving their glycogen as much as they can and using more fats the, to the, drive The cells energy. have become extremely efficient at functioning with sipping glycogen and carbohydrate substrate overall rather than gulping it. And one of the fascinating observation, and this is semi-retrospective, we didn't really understand what this might have meant 30 years ago when we did this study. This is total white blood cell count. We didn't do CRPs and IL-6 back then. You know, I, I'm, I didn't antedate Paul Ridker. And they had a statistically significant decline in total white blood cell count from 5.2 to 4.5. Still hyperuricemic here. They're higher than they were at baseline. It's clear that a ketotic diet is leading to more efficient fat utilization, maybe associated with the initial reduction in performance, but over time it recovers. You know, we're learning more and more about how beta-hydroxybutyrate is beneficial in organs that have high mitochondria. I read that in your work. It's really intriguing when you put it into the CT3 cells. We actually didn't do the beta-hydroxybutyrate, but I think that um, Dietrich Veach, I think, has done some... Right. I think he had some data showing the benefits in the heart. There may be benefits in the kidney, and certainly there are benefits in the brain. So you wonder about the benefits of beta-hydroxybutyrate in these states and how it might affect mitochondrial function. The uric acid is very confusing because it's certainly going up acutely, and then it comes down. And for the most part, we think of it as not being a good thing. But uric acid is an interesting molecule because it can be an antioxidant under certain circumstances. So, and When you look at the ORAC test in humans, the biggest variable in the ORAC test is not alpha-tocopherol in the blood or vitamin C in the blood. It's uric acid in the blood. That's right. Are you both saying that uric acid in the blood can sometimes be protective from an antioxidant standpoint, but your guess is that if it's in the cell, it's causing problems, and the level in the blood may be a hint at what's going on in the cell? Well, inside a cell, it's a pro-oxidant, and outside the cell, it's an antioxidant. But the question is, is a pro-oxidant in the cell always bad? And there may be times when it's not bad, and... This has a lot to do with biologic functions like we're talking here in terms of uh, starving a cell or trying to load fat in a cell or burning the fat. It's a little bit hard to know what the uric acid's doing and how it's playing a role in this particular study. Uh, obviously, the most interesting thing would be to do a randomized trial where you would take the bikers with or without allopurinol to prevent the uric acid rise and to see how it would affect things like RQ and muscle glycogen, and so forth. Working with Jeff Volek at the University of Connecticut, my collaborator there, he gave me the opportunity to look at a number of parameters. I'm very interested in the human economy of essential fatty acids because, as you know, arachidonic acid is bandied about as being a profoundly pro-inflammatory compound within cells, whereas the omega-3 long-chain fatty acids, EPA and DHA, are said to be anti-inflammatory. And I'm very interested in the human economy of those fatty acids under conditions of carb restriction. So we did a study in people with metabolic syndrome. So we're basically taking 40 people who are, on average, somewhat inflamed, either high triglycerides and or central obesity and or hypertension and or evidence for insulin resistance and or, frankly, low HDL cholesterols. Half of them were put on a 1,500-calorie calorically restricted high-carbohydrate diet, and the other half were put on a similar calorie intake of a high-fat, moderate-protein, very low-carb diet. We followed them for 12 weeks. They were outpatients and monitored closely by dietitians in Jeff's research group. So they didn't have complete control of the diet. 
After 12 weeks, the uh, mean weight loss in the high-carb, low-fat restricted group was 5 kilos, and the mean weight loss in the high-fat, low-carb group was 8 kilos. The total weight loss was different, but about half of the difference was body water, probably not lean body mass based on DEXA, but actual loss of body water. But still, the fat mass reduction was significantly different between the two. So either the, there was energy inefficiency associated with the carb restriction or they were better adherent, one or the other. But the important data for us is that Jeff measured 14 different biomarkers of inflammation because, as we all know, no one particular value is the gold standard for inflammation. So we measured CRP, IL-6, total white cell count, ICAM, VCAM. Both groups had a reduction in mean summated anti-inflammatory score but the value was significantly greater in the group on, on low carb. By the way, there was no change in measured insulin sensitivity in the high carb group, but there was a 50 plus percent improvement in insulin sensitivity reduction in insulin resistance in the low carb group. So at 12 weeks, we saw significantly greater reduction in inflammation biomarkers and significant reduction in insulin resistance in the group fed the high fat, low carb diet. My interpretation of your data is there's two aspects to it. The first one is when you go on a low-carb diet, you will have a tendency to deplete the glycogen in the liver more rapidly, and this has been shown by multiple investigators. The glycogen, Cahill showed, retains a lot more water than fat per gram. So when you burn glycogen, you lose a lot of water. By going on a low-carb diet, you're basically depleting the glycogen in the liver, losing more water, and then the body has to start utilizing fat primarily as its energy source. So my guess is this is why you're seeing a reduction more in fat and uh, water with that diet. The improvement in insulin resistance and inflammatory markers. Were these insulin-resistant people to begin with? Were they very metabolically... The definition of metabolic syndrome. Okay, so... Most of the improvement in the insulin resistance and inflammatory markers are more likely from the reduction in fructose intake as part of the reduction in carbs. And the evidence that fructose is driving insulin resistance and that it's driving inflammation is really getting quite significant. We have a paper in press right now in which we gave a low-fructose diet to patients with kidney disease, and we saw a reduction in inflammatory markers, blood pressure, we also have a study in press in Mexico where we did a low-fructose diet, but it was with caloric restriction, so it's a little trickier to interpret. But nevertheless, I think there's more and more data that the uric acid component in fructose is having a significant effect on insulin resistance and blood pressure. Jeff is an, he's one of these rare individuals who has a Ph.D. in kinesthesiology, exercise physiology, but he's an R.D. So he has a bevy of eager dietitians who come to him as graduate students who are diligent at collecting data. So there's the potential of going back and looking at Dr. Cassandra Forsyth's data. She's PhD RD herself now, who did these studies, and actually look at the fructose content of the individuals who are on the, the carb-containing arm of the study. That would be really intriguing. But the other thing I just want to toss out, Jeff and I will be starting a study. He's got funding for a study this summer, again, to intervene in people with metabolic syndrome. And it's not going to be a randomized controlled trial this time. It's just going to be we're looking at the correlates of carbohydrate refeeding after we induce a ketogenic state. So we're basically going to do this to these people for the first month, get everybody to this level of ketonemia, and through the metabolic adaptation get them off the roller coaster. And then we're going to incrementally 
add back carbs until we drive all of them out of ketosis. We're looking for two things. We've seen a lot of individual variability. I certainly have seen as a clinician that some people, you can feed them 50 grams a day of carbs and they've got ketones like this. And other people, you give them 50 grams of carbs and they're down at uh, almost you know, like they've been eating four bagels a day. We don't know what makes one person more ketogenic or anti-ketogenic than another. We have the potential of looking at blood and urine Uric acid levels. Uric acid does affect glycogen. We have some beautiful data. If you acutely raise uric acid, you can block glycogen degradation in the liver. It was actually published in JBC in vitro, but we have in vivo data. So there is a uric acid glycogen story. Glycogenolysis, or is it increasing glycogen production because the metabolic trauma or stress of uric acid is driving gluconeogenic carbon from the periphery to the liver? When you stress somebody... The peripheral musculature gives up what it's got to keep the central viscera. Our study was designed to load the animals with glycogen, and then we put them on a starvation. Mm -hmm. And we looked at the removal of glycogen over time in the presence or absence of hyperuricemia. So it's more of a removal of glycogen. But we do think there could be effects on glycogen synthesis, but we just haven't really gone into it in great detail. Since we haven't started collecting samples yet, the yeah, it'd be fun to collaborate. If you, I think there'd be an opportunity. It'd be wonderful. It'd be wonderful. And the other possibility is that the low carb diets could be improving the insulin resistance, in part from reduction in the glucose component. We think that that still may involve fructose, believe it or not, but kind of an endogenous fructose pathway. When you become insulin resistant, your aldose reductase goes up, and so you start making endogenous fructose. We're doing studies right now with fructokinase knockout animals to specifically look at that pathway. Have you ever really thought in terms of endogenous fructose production? It's very important. And I know that the, the, the pathways of disposal of dietary fructose are very different than the disposal of the fructose 6-phosphate in the Meyerhoff endin pathway. They're, they're completely separate pathways. They don't cross. But endogenous production, you know, is there a place I can read about that? There'll be some papers coming out on that, so stay tuned. Why would a body make its own fructose when it's in a metabolically messed up state? No, no, everything's made for a purpose, Shelley. So uh, the body makes its own fructose for a reason. Right. Fructose is used to help increase fat stores. It's all meant for a purpose, just like all animals including us, have machinery to increase our fat and machinery to lose fat. Cass Forsyth, Dr. Forsyth now, yeah. is the first author on, on Jeff's study. And this came out in lipids back in 08. Yeah, yeah I think I have a copy of this. Okay. But the thing is that I've been tracking for 20 years when you come to insulin sensitivity is we looked at the phospholipid fatty acid profiles of these people before and after. And this is... The uh, arachidonic acid, the shorthand nomenclature is 20 carbons, 4 double bonds, and 6 family. And this is baseline week 0, and this is at 12 weeks. And what we saw is a consistent rise in arachidonic acid. Some people didn't rise, but as a group, for an N of, of 20, it's a, it's a remarkably consistent change in something which we normally see is tightly regulated in people over time. And it's not because they ate more arachidonic acid. The reason why phospholipid arachidonic acid is interesting because there's this group from Australia that published a paper back in 93 in the New England Journal of Medicine. The first author was a guy named Borkman, but the lead guy in the group was Len Storlian, who's been very interested in muscle membrane fatty acid composition and insulin sensitivity. And they did a study with both muscle biopsy, percutaneous biopsies, and biopsies taken at the time of surgery in patients 
in an Australian cohort, and then again in Pimas, in the Pima study down in Phoenix, in which they demonstrated that membrane arachidonic acid is positively correlated with insulin sensitivity. Here they're talking not about receptors embedded, protein receptors embedded in the membrane or transporters, but they're talking about the actual fabric of the membrane itself affecting the functioning of the insulin-glucose interaction. So we have found a footprint in the sand consistent with that animal here in this cohort. And we're going to be looking at that in more detail in this upcoming study. Did you measure uh, prostaglandins or urinary prostaglandins or thromboxane derivatives to see if there was a change in pattern of prostaglandin mechanism? We, I believe, measured urinary isoprostanes in these people. But the problem with isoprostanes is the really bioactive ones have half-lives that are so short that it's like trying to catch a picture of a lightning bolt with an old Kodak camera. Rather than trying to measure prostaglandins, which are a minor metabolic product of arachidonic acid, apparently, according to Jack Roberts down at Vanderbilt, there is an order or two magnitude greater degradation of arachidonic acid into isoprostane pathways, you know, of which there are at least 16 common compounds, than there is for the enzymatically driven production of, of prostaglandins per se. But you're leading to something that's really intrigued me, because everybody up to now has looked at membrane composition from the point of view of input in. But nobody really has paid much attention to looking at the, the rates of degradation of these very peroxidation-prone fatty acids wrapped around mitochondria, which are making ROS. Fascinating. Yeah, I don't know much about uh, membrane lipids. And very few of us do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, the problem is you take one fossil lipid sample and you put it in a 50-meter column in a GC and you come out with 35 different numbers. And if one goes up, somebody else, to, else has to go down. Either absolutes or percents, it's a zero-sum game. Trying to figure out what's happening, what's the driver and what's the tail and which is the dog is very vexing. The other thing is comparing a ketotic diet to the second phase of starvation where you're undergoing ketosis, but you're not getting fats fed to you and how that affects metabolism, you know, the differences. Have you told Rick Johnson about your rats that you have a new way of feeding them of chow that means that they actually will eat a very high-fat diet, the high-fat chow that isn't runny. Yeah, working with Craig Warden, he does molecular genetics of obesity in mice. primary mouse strain is C57 black, which are obesity-prone animals. Craig was very gracious to let me work with him on developing what we call a healthy ketogenic diet. There is a ketogenic diet out there that BioServe produces called F3666, and it makes rodents overtly ketotic. Rodents are quite ketone-resistant, actually. Given 20% of their energy is protein, and that's quite anti-ketogenic in a, in a mouse model. So the F3666 turns out to be about 5% of energy as protein and 94% as fat and 1% as, quote, carbohydrate. And you can make animals overtly ketotic, but if you keep them on it for a month or longer, it causes a severe hepatic steatosis. Liver enzymes go up. We'll hopefully have a paper in press that demonstrates that. Gravimetrically, you get three times as much fat in the liver of the F3666 mouse as one that we feed our, quote, healthy ketogenic diet, which is 15% protein, 75% fat, 76%. And we give 5% as, quote, carbohydrate, but we give it as the sugar alcohol xylitol, which Unlike sorbitol or erythritol or, or mannitol, xylitol is absorbed and metabolized, and it actually is energy-yielding sugar, but it's non-insulinogenic. And we actually get ketones that are above half millimolar in the fed animals because we're 
modestly restricting them in calories. Those animals do not get fatty liver? Those animals have about 4% by weight fat. The control animals, which are fed a 30% fat, 50% carb, but as cornstarch, and the same amount of protein, those animals are not significantly different in terms of liver fat, 4 to 5%. And then the F3666 animals have 14% fat in their livers. Is that a food that could be fed to the, what are they called, the Zucker rats, that are the ones that are prone to metabolic syndrome? Is that the name of them? Zuckers are, are leptin receptor deficient animals. With, and depending on the background for the fatty gene, they may or may not be diabetes prone. Well, what's the name of that rat that you had in your study of glucose and fructose? Greg Dolly rat. No, that was just a regular rat. Let me ask you, so there's a ketotic diet that leads to severe fatty liver? It's been used, you know, nutritional ketosis has been an alternate treatment for epilepsy. One of the things that's vexed people from the 1920s when that effect was noted first at the Mayo Clinic by Wilder and Peterman is nobody knows the mechanism. And so they've, people have been trying to come up with rodent models of seizures to try to figure out what the mechanism is, is that a ketogenic diet will reduce seizure frequency and then many, many children with drug-resistant seizures become seizure-free on it. So this diet was, has been available probably for the last eight or 10 years, the F3666 diet. People have published papers and they show pictures of livers. I look at the liver and say, look at that light, fat, tan liver. That's paddock steatosis. But no one's ever pointed out that this diet that they use and try to understand seizure suppression in the animals is actually making their livers very sick. And so we're struggling to get the paper published because we're flying in the face of some of these pet projects. You're saying that two different ketotic diets are having major differences on fatty liver. That's correct. The one that's causing fatty liver, what's the main difference? It's so low in protein. The animals don't gain weight as fast as animals fed same number of calories as chow. And we think part of that is it's inducing sarcopenia. It's so low in protein that it, the animals are, are protein-starved. Quashiacore. Doing exactly what quashiacore does, and it's preventing, we presume, uh, lipoprotein production in the liver, which means that you entrap fat in the liver because you can't efficiently produce the adequate surface proteins to get it out into the circulation. With humans, do they get fatty liver on a high-fat, low-carb diet in general? Uh, they get a fatty liver on low-protein, high-carb diets. That's kosher core. When you feed children pure starch diets, because there is no protein to feed them, so you're giving them just manioc, cassava diets, they develop bloated bellies with big livers, and they start retaining fluid, and that's the classic third-world field diagnosis of kosher core. But in people eating a high-fat diet, generally that reduces fatty liver or it increases it? It's not been well-studied. Eric Westman has attempted to do a small study in people with non-alcoholic hepatic steatosis, NASH, uh, with low-carb diets, and based on ultrasound diagnosis, not invasive biopsy, but ultrasound diagnosis, they seem to be reducing liver fat with a, quote, Atkins diet. What we call Atkins now, by the way, I co-authored with Eric Westman and Jeff Volek a new version of the Atkins diet we published it a year ago, uh, which is not substantially different in the induction phase from what Bob Atkins used to publish when he was alive, but it is substantially different in how we move people towards long-term maintenance that we think will allow such a diet to be safely sustained in the long term. And I've seen people with severe high blood pressure become normal tensive. I've seen people with you know, quite severe, and Shelley has talked about this quite a bit in, in her work and, and presented data you know, in, in her as a layperson interacting with, with diabetics. We see remission, I mean, not 
improvement, a complete remission in type 2 diabetics on this kind of diet. But that's no good if they can only do it for three months and, <laughs> and it doesn't work anymore. And so one of the things I've worked towards is trying to come up with a long-term sustainable version of the diet. And we think it's feasible. And the thing that drives me to think that is true, because I don't think we're that different from our aboriginal ancestors. This is a pastel picture of three Caucasians just talking with a group of native people of the Arctic, the Inuit people, planning an expedition where they then went by dog sled 3,000 miles across the Canadian Arctic to the Arctic coastline and back over a period of 13 months. This guy scooped me because on my, you know, my bike racer study, I showed that after a period of adaptation could sustain physical performance, that this guy had this quote of, when first thrown wholly upon the diet of the natives, it seems to inadequately properly nourish the system and there is an apparent weakness but this soon passes them away in the course of two to three weeks. Swatka, Lieutenant Swatka, who is a U.S. Army surgeon, and his two other Caucasian colleagues went 3,000 miles on foot because the dogs didn't pull the people, they just pulled the loads. Across the Arctic, after a month of when they ran out of their, their own foods, they lived on the diet of the people, and all of them survived the trek and came back hale and hearty. A, the Caucasians were able to cross over and, and live, so it wasn't that the Inuits have some unique genetic capability. But they had an ability to live in a hostile environment, to do prodigious feats of physical performance in an environment where even modern amounts of carbohydrate, let alone copious amounts, were not available. Fascinating. Let me, uh, you know, if you have the tissues from your mice that got the ketotic, low-protein diet that developed fatty liver, it would be interesting to have us take a look at it with some of our pathways and the serum, because I think we might be able to help you with identifying mechanisms. The graduate student who was driving this project, she was learning how to do the assays. I'm not sure how much, and you know, mouse livers are, are small to begin with, but I would guess that within the next year, Craig and I will have another. Yeah. We'll either put the C57 black group back on the diet, or the more intriguing possibility is we may put some Zucker diabetic male rats in a three-arm dietary study in which case we'll have more tissue. Would you mind it being Zucker liver and, and serum? Make it a little more complicated, but yeah, we could. So that's very fascinating. You're, you're doing wonderful work, just really great work. But you're right, the uric acid question remains vexing for both of us. I was thinking that it was from gluconeogenesis and from um, muscle breakdown, but it clearly can't be strictly that because... Mm-hmm. Suggested an interesting possibility, and maybe you didn't mean to suggest that, that there may be that the, bioactiv- the positive bioactivity of the circulating ketones is basically an effective countermeasure against the initial transient negative effects of the increase in circulating uric acid. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I did say that. Which, to me, is... Which, once again, confirms that nature is a remarkably elegant beast. Right. Very good. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah.